Welcome to BMO COVID-19 Insights. Visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19 for more up-to-the-minute insights. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Good morning, everyone. I'm Nadeem Herji, Executive Vice President and Head of BMO's Commercial Banking Business in Canada. Thank you for starting your day with us today, especially for those of you on the West Coast and in the prairies where it's 5 or even 6 a.m. With the federal government tabling the budget yesterday, the first issued in two years, we felt it was important to have this call to hopefully provide you with some insight and some clarity. Doug Porter, BMO's chief economist, has analyzed the budget and is here to unpack what it could tell us about the years ahead. The current third wave and the challenges that come with it, especially with full lockdown in Ontario and parts of Quebec, and the great challenges across all of Canada creates a lot of uncertainty, but I think we all still see a light at the end of this long, dark tunnel. Hopefully, the budget gives us all a reason to be optimistic that the country will be well positioned for a rebounding from the pandemic and that it sets the stage for prosperous economic growth. We'll start this morning with Doug's analysis followed by Q&A. We received many questions in advance on our registration site, many of which will be answered through the information that Doug will provide in his presentation. But you can also submit a question for Doug through the chat feature you see on the screen. So let's get going. Good morning, Doug. I will turn the floor over to you and hope that you can provide us with your views on the state of the country's finances. What are some of the important pieces of the budget that we should understand better, its impacts, and what lies ahead? So with that, over to you, Doug. Thank you, Nadim, and uh, good morning, everyone. It's uh, it's a pleasure to join you here. Um, I have to tell you, I've been covering budgets for uh, for a little bit more than 30 years, and this one was truly like no other, and this uh, budget breakfast is, uh, is like no other as well. Uh, this was an enormous document. It was a very ambitious effort. I think in uh, some sense, as Nadim said, we, uh, we did not have a budget last year. In some sense, this almost made up uh, for the fact that we didn't have one in, uh, in just the scope. It uh, really did touched almost every imaginable portion of the economy. You know, it even had things like uh, attacks on vaping products, for instance. Um, I can't possibly uh, do it justice, the 700 pages. There's literally more than 100 new measures in the budget. I can't do it uh, full justice in terms of each and every one of those measures over uh, the next 20 minutes or so. But what I plan on doing is basically walking through some of the major financial aspects of, of the budget. Uh, and then I'm going to turn around and talk about what it might mean for the uh, the economic outlook over uh, over the next year. Uh, so just to get started, let's, uh, let's begin with the, the very big picture. There were two main themes in the budget. Uh, one was basically getting us through the last stage, hopefully the last stage of, of the pandemic, and there's still quite a tremendous cost to that uh, over the next six months or so, and then laying the groundwork for uh, for the recovery um, in in the government's view, you know, their, their so-called building back better. And the main plank of that was the, uh, the new national child care, the proposed child care uh, arrangement. Uh, but that was just one of, of many, many measures. Now, in terms of uh, the big deficit number, uh, last year's deficit, which was a record, 
uh, did come in a bit smaller than what was initially pegged late last year instead of the $380 billion that was widely talked about. Uh, because of a better economic performance around the turn of the year, it now looks like it'll be about $350 billion. That's for the uh, the fiscal year that would have ended at the uh, the end of March. Now, the year that's just begun this month, it does look like the deficit will come down and come down a lot. It'll drop by about $200 billion, but it will still be historically large. Uh, it is expected to drop to a bit more than $150 billion. That's about 6% of the economy. That's back in the range of things we've seen before. We have never seen a deficit like last year's uh, deficit, but as a share of the economy, a deficit that's about 6% of the economy is is something we, we have dealt with before. And I would just stress that does include a lot of the you know, s- spending related to the pandemic that will still be in place in this fiscal year. Things like the extension of the Q's program, um, more CRB, which used to be CERB uh, payments that uh, will wind down as uh, as we get later into this year. And that's largely why the deficit is still as large as it is expected to be this year. When we get into the next fiscal year, it's then expected to drop again to much, much more manageable levels below $60 billion. That's still twice where we were before the pandemic began. Uh, but I would regard the uh, the budget deficit forecast for next year and the year after, while still large, a bit larger than I'd like to see, um, much more comfortable and in, in, in a zone of what we've seen before. Now, as I said, uh, there were there were literally more than a hundred measures. Just a, a few of the other ones I would point to besides childcare. There were, you know, one thing a lot of people were watching for would was would there be big tax increases? There were a number of uh, smaller targeted tax measures. But I think the uh, the good news for most people probably on this line is that there were no broad-based tax increases. We weren't expecting any, um, but it's uh, it's still a relief to, to see that the, the government does believe that it can get uh, the budget down to much more manageable levels over the next couple of years without resorting to uh, to big tax increases. And I think that's one of the, uh, the major messages uh, that I'd like to leave you with here today. Um, this there's a lot of information on this chart. There's a lot of information in the budget, uh, but the one thing I would like to point to on the left hand side is this looks at spending and revenues as a share of the economy, and it goes back all the way to the 1960s. You can see just what an outlier spending was over the last year compared to any kind of historical precedent. It really was not a revenue story. Revenues actually they did get a bit dented, but they held up remarkably well. They did they did drop as a, as a share of the economy to uh, the l- lowest level we've we've seen in a, in a great number of decades. But as you can see, the expectation is that revenues uh, will come back and come back relatively quickly and are really not that abnormal in a historic uh, context. But take a look at that light green line. Um, it, it you know program spending had basically been drifting uh, sideways for a number of years. It had been grinding up uh, somewhat in in the last couple of years, and then it just absolutely spiked. And what that reflects is all the very special measures that were wheeled out over the last year to essentially you know backstop the economy through uh, through the shutdown, support incomes uh, for individuals, support uh, small businesses. And uh, the number of other special programs that were brought out last year, as you can see, as the uh, economy reopens, the expectation is that a lot of those one-time spending measures will prove to be one-time and that they will roll off and roll off quickly. And even with, you know, things like the new childcare program, you can see that total spending as a share of the economy is expected to be back around 15% of GDP within a couple of years, close to where it was before the pandemic uh, began. Of course, the other thing everyone's focused on, I talked about the uh, the budget deficit numbers, is that uh, federal debt line at the bottom. Yes, the uh, the federal debt did go above a trillion dollars. 
uh, last year is expected to uh, to rise further over the the next few years. Essentially, in the space of about five years, going back to pre-pandemic levels, it will have doubled over that uh, that five-year period of time. Um, so when we look at uh, the, the debt figures as a, as a share of the economy, this is ultimately how we will, quote, pay for the, the pandemic is through a one-time big step up in debt to GDP. For years before the pandemic, uh, Ottawa had basically been maintaining a, a very stable debt to GDP ratio of around 30%. Um, you know, through thick and thin, uh, we had seen the, uh, the the debt to GDP ratio, quite, as I said, quite stable at close to 30%. And then we had that enormous pickup last year where we essentially went to 30, from 30% to 50% overnight. Now, the expectation is in this fiscal plan that was laid out yesterday is that the debt will peak this year as a share of the economy and actually begin to drift down over the medium term because the economy will be growing faster than the, uh, the debt uh, will be in the years ahead. Uh, so effectively, the government will now be targeting a 50% uh, debt-to-GDP ratio. It's very unfortunate that it's ta taken this one big step up uh, from what had been a very stable level for, for years and years. Um, but I guess if there's any good news, it's the fact that it's still below where we were back in the bad old days in the mid-1990s. In the mid-1990s, the, uh, the debt-to-GDP peaked at a little bit more than 70% of GDP. So we're still below uh, those uh, those levels that we saw a little bit more than two decades ago. Uh, just as uh, if we took the chart way back on the left-hand side, if we went back to the uh, the pre-war days, or I'm sorry, the uh, the post the immediate post-war years, we would have actually seen the, uh, the debt get closer to 100% of GDP very temporarily, and then it came down quickly in the uh, the post-war boom. Uh, so the, the, the level of debt, well, in dollar terms, it's at a record high. It's nowhere close to being a record as as a share of the economy. The other good news, of course, is that this has all taken place at a time of very, very low interest rates. Now, I wouldn't want to bank on that forever. There's no guarantees that interest rates are going to remain anywhere close to where they, they are. Uh, we, we suspect they are not likely going far in the next couple of years, and I'll get into that in a, in a minute. Um, but uh, the, the overall interest costs of this debt still remain very low. In fact, even with the big run-up that we've seen in debt over the uh, the last year, the actual interest costs on Ottawa's debt have, have dropped in the last year just because interest rates plunged so much over, over the past year. Now, this won't last forever. Uh, we will see the interest costs begin to creep up over over the next few years. But effectively, we, we expect them to remain quite uh, quite manageable. But again, I would stress that does not give Ottawa an open checkbook uh, to to freely spend as as they like. Uh, the, the this low level of interest rates is by no means uh, guaranteed. Uh, we're all it's also not guaranteed that we're going to have a robust economic recovery to uh, to fuel uh, our revenues in uh, in the years ahead. Uh, and that brings me to the next topic, and that's uh, the economic forecast that this uh, budget was was based upon. Uh, just as a reminder, Ottawa, really since the mid-1990s, has been basing its economic projections on uh, the private sector consensus. They've basically taken their hands off of, uh, of and almost depoliticizing the, uh, the, the economic forecast, which I think is appropriate. Um, I'm not going to tell you the consensus always gets it right. We're certainly part of that uh, that consensus. I'd like to think we're a big part of that consensus. Uh, we don't always get it right, but uh, I, I do believe that over time, the consensus is one of the single best 
forecasters for the economy. And what this budget is based on is, frankly, a very strong economic recovery. Um, uh, if you can see the numbers there, what uh, the budget is based on is 5.8% real growth this year and 4% growth next year. We think those are actually fairly reasonable uh, assumptions. We're, if anything, slightly more optimistic uh, both this year and next than the consensus on the, is on the forecast. However, by no means is that strong recovery absolutely baked in the cake. You know, we've seen some of the uh, much tougher restrictions, whether it's in Ontario or BC or even Alberta in, uh, in recent days and recent weeks. Uh, that is going to ding the economy pretty seriously in the month of April. Our view is that this is only going to delay uh, the point at which the uh, the economy recovers, it's not going to de derail it, uh, but it will take a little bit of a bite out of this year's growth rate. And so, you know, we can't completely be comfortable in the assumption that the economy will see a very strong recovery uh, this year and next, but we do think it's uh, a reasonable assumption. The other thing the budget is based on, as I mentioned, is the continuation of relatively low interest rates. And we did have a big bump up in long-term interest rates to start the year. They have since stabilized and even come down a little bit. And again, it just so happens that our projection for interest rates for this year and next, uh, whether it's short-term interest rates close to zero or longer-term interest rates of a little bit more than uh, 1% over the next year, it's very close to what the uh, the budget is uh, is based on. But I would just point out that the, uh, the, the, the budget does rely on the, the nice combination of a strong recovery over the next year and the persistence of relatively low interest rates. We do think that's correct, but there is clearly a risk uh, to both those uh, relatively positive assumptions. Now, the other thing I would point out is, you know, I talked a little bit about uh, Ottawa's uh, still a very significant budget deficit. Uh, you know, as I said, 16% of GDP last year expected to fall to 6% this year. Of course, uh, when you look at Canadian uh, uh, the Canadian fiscal landscape, you also have to take the provinces into account as well, and they are very significant borrowers in addition to uh, to Ottawa. Now, the good news is, and I would say appropriately so, is that Ottawa really did shoulder the burden of the pandemic costs over the past year and even uh, again this year. Uh, yes, the uh, the budget deficits did widen in most provinces. You can see New Brunswick actually managed to almost balance its budget over, over the last year, but they were the outlier. Uh, most provinces did run fairly significant budget deficits, but it was much smaller uh, than what we saw at the federal level. If you combine all the provincial de budget deficits together, they're about 4% of the national economy, which is about a quarter of the size of the uh, the federal government uh, deficit. So if you add everybody together, um, Ottawa plus all the 10 provinces, you do end up with uh, a budget deficit that was close to $450 billion or about 20% of the economy. That is enormous. Um, that is one of the larger budget deficits in the world. Uh, Canada really takes a backseat to uh, to no one, I would say, in in terms of how much support uh, we saw right across the uh, the country, whether it was from the federal government or from uh, from the provincial governments. So just to wrap up the uh, the specifics of the of the deficit, uh, I'm sorry of of the budget. I think the the you know the main point is is before this began, Ottawa talked about spending an extra seventy to hundred billion dollars to, in their words, uh, to jumpstart the economy. Uh, they they did that one better. Uh, they're actually planning on spending hundred one billion dollars over the, uh, the the next three fiscal years with the bulk of it landing in this year, 
to again really support the economy through the, uh, the hopefully the last stages of the pandemic, and to help foster the the recovery. Now, our view is that the recovery was likely uh, to be relatively robust in any event as the as the economy reopened. This will just further reinforce what we expect to be a relatively strong growth pattern as the uh, the economy gets through the initial stages of reopening, hopefully this summer and into the fall. Uh, with this extra spending, though, uh, the deficit will not completely come down quickly. We do expect it to uh, to drop pretty sharply, but it will remain relatively large at over $150 billion uh, th- this year, uh, largely because of that, uh, that extra dose of spending. Uh, that Ottawa is talking about uh, bringing in. Uh, even with that extra spending, we are looking for the uh, the debt to GDP ratio to stabilize. It will peak this year at just a little bit more than 50%. It will stabilize in the next couple of years, and then we think it will slowly drift down as that deficit recedes further and the uh, the economic recovery is uh, is more complete. As I said, to me, one of the key takeaways is um, you know many many fiscal uh, conservatives. Um, I consider myself mildly fiscal fiscally conservative, uh, might be concerned about this uh, this wave of spending. But, uh, you know, I will point to the fact that even with this, this relatively aggressive uh, backdrop uh, for spending, the new child care program, uh, we are looking at an environment with no major tax increases. There was a, uh, there was a lot of concern about things like the, uh, the capital gains inclusion rate going up, uh, not just on principal residences, uh, but uh, capital gains more broadly. And there was not, no talk of that uh, whatsoever. The, the tax increases uh, were much more targeted. Things uh, like uh, you know, a luxury tax on uh, on on high-end boats, planes, and uh, vehicles above one hundred thousand uh, dollars. There was a, a digital services tax, but there were really no major broad-based tax increases. And uh, you know, the budget plan really does see a pretty marked narrowing in the deficit in the years ahead, without resorting to uh, to tax increases. Now, with that, I'm I'm going to briefly uh, talk about what this uh, means for uh, for our economic forecast. This is where I get into the more traditional aspects of, uh, of my presentation. Uh, certainly, the the dominant feature remains the, uh, the the pandemic, especially here in Canada. You know, I talk about a third wave. Um, this chart looks at the number of new COVID cases uh, in Canada, the big five European economies, and the U.S. And you can see what stands out there is really for the first time in the pandemic, and this is pretty close to being on a per capita basis. Uh, Canada is really seeing as many new cases as, as any of the major economies at, at uh, this point. Um, we, I guess the good news is, is in places like Europe and the U.S., we, uh, partly because of the aggressive vaccination process, especially in the U.S. and the U.K., uh, we're not seeing a, a full-fledged third wave such as we're uh, seeing at this point in, uh, in Canada. And the vaccine is getting rolled out in a much more expeditious fashion. And so we suspect that after this wave does crest, uh, we are expecting... Uh, the economy to much more fully reopen through the summer, and especially in the last four months of the year. If you you know, looking at the uh, the budget document, for instance, yesterday, there did seem to be the assumption that a lot of the uh, the special spending uh, could be rolled off after September, when I would presume uh, the government too is assuming, because of uh, a much more rapid pace of vaccinations, uh, that we will have a much more full opening of of the economy when we get into uh, September and uh, and beyond. Uh, now, globally. Um, we are expecting a very robust recovery. This is not just a Canadian story by any means. After seeing, you know, the worst downturn in the post-war era globally last year, uh, when the global economy fell by about 3%, we are looking for the global economy to bounce back 
uh, by at a 6% growth rate this year, and then maintain some of that strength into 2022 when things like the travel industry uh, open much more uh, fully. We're expecting the global economy to grow by 5% when we get out into, uh, into next year. Uh, turning to North America, it's actually a, a roughly similar story I mentioned earlier, what our uh, projection was for uh, for Canada. Uh, if anything, we see somewhat stronger growth in the, the U.S. this year. There's a couple reasons for that. One is, frankly, and I think we're all aware of that, is uh, how much more quickly the U.S. economy has uh, has been be able been able to reopen because of their uh, their faster vaccination program. Uh, also, um, President Biden brought in that a massive uh, stimulus. Pro- proposal of his own at the start of the year, $1.9 trillion. That's equal to 9% of the U.S. uh, economy. Uh, That has already started to juice things like uh, retail sales and uh, and housing starts in, in the U.S. And so we're looking for the strongest performance of the U.S. economy, the strongest growth rate since 1984 at 6.5%. And if anything, we may even be a little bit conservative or cautious in that view. I actually see uh, the risk to our forecast on the U.S. economy this year to be the upside. And then some of that strength carrying through into, uh, into next year when we see the U.S. economy still growing uh, by better than 4% when we get out into uh, in 2022. As you can see, we see Canada largely growing in line. There'll be a bit of a delay, a bit of a stalling out in the second quarter because of the new restrictions. But then we think we play catch up through the second half of the year and into 2022 when we think the uh, the Canadian economy can basically grow in line, if not even a little bit faster uh, for uh, for some quarters than the U.S. economy over the uh, the, the next year. Uh, now we have after after that terrible performance or terrible event last year, uh, last spring when we saw unemployment rates shoot up to uh, the double digit pace in both uh, the U.S. and Canada last uh, April and May, we've seen them come down and come down pretty aggressively. Uh, we've seen a bit more choppiness in Canada because of the on-off restrictions that we've seen. We actually do believe the unemployment rate uh, will likely rise in April and May before beginning to drop again. Uh, but we are looking for some further pretty dramatic un- uh, improvement in the unemployment rates in both Canada and the U.S. over the next year. And we think that by uh, the middle part of next year, even late next year, uh, the unemployment rates uh, will be almost all the way back to where they were before the uh, the pandemic began, and that the employment market will be fairly close to what we would consider to be normal uh, by uh, by late next year as the economy reopens. I talked a little bit about the interest rate environment earlier and, and the budget being based on uh, a still low interest rate environment. If we look at the, sh- the short-term interest rates on the left, these are you know things that drive prime rates, your variable mortgage rates. These are the uh, the so-called overnight rates that the central banks can directly control. We th- we think that central banks in Canada and the U.S. cannot be clearer that they are going to be extraordinarily patient uh, before they raise interest rates. Our view is that it's likely not until 2023 before either the Fed or the Bank of Canada raises these short-term interest rates. Uh, they're very close to zero in, in both Canada and the U.S. We think that they will wait until we have a full recovery and a full recovery, especially in the labor market, before they start raising interest rates. And so we see the short-term interest rates really going nowhere over the uh, the next two years. Uh, now it's a slightly different story for longer-term interest rates. As I mentioned, we did see these longer-term interest rates burst out of the gates at the start of the year. That's almost a perfect V-shaped pattern you see on the right-hand side in the, in the last uh, 12 months or so. Um, but they have stabilized in recent weeks. And while we do see some further 
modest upward pressure on these long-term interest rates over the next 18 months. I think in some respects, the big move is already behind us. And there is there is a slight chance that there's any disappointment on the, uh, the, the recovery that we'll actually see these rates uh, recede temporarily before grinding higher later this year and into, into 2022. Um, but, you know, there again, I think the big story is that after a very sharp move in the first couple months of the year, uh, we see interest longer term interest rates only grinding higher over the uh, the next couple of years. Effectively, uh, much like other financial markets, the bond market really did build in a very ro- robust recovery right at the start of the year, and so essentially the market will no longer be surprised by those kind of strong growth rates that I that I talked about uh, just a few slides ago. Now, one other concern that is definitely out there in the market and uh, among our clients is, you know, given all the stimulus that we've seen, you know, given the, the you know, just this unprecedented bond buying we're seeing by uh, by central banks, uh, this, uh, you know, this persistence of very large budget deficits, you know, is this going to lead to much higher inflation? And we are going to see some pretty meaty inflation numbers in the next couple months, partly because we're comparing ourselves to extraordinary conditions of a year ago. Uh, Temporarily, the headline inflation number in Canada and the U.S. will get around 3% or even a little bit higher uh, from what's uh, current readings of just uh, around 1%. But we think these high readings will not last long and that inflation will ease back uh, closer to 2% by the end of this year. And we expect over the medium term uh, inflation to settle back at around two percent or so, and when you, so when you're doing your your planning over the next five years or so, I still think it's very reasonable to base that plan on an average inflation rate of about two percent, even though we're going to see some pretty meaty numbers, as I said, in the next couple months or so. Now, I will tell you um, that the risks to this forecast are a little bit on the high side and not on the low side, and I think that's an important message. You know, a year ago in the early stages of the the recession, uh, the concern was that uh, you know we were looking at possibly, you know, a a situation of deflation, uh, you know, an extended period of declining prices. And really, no one's talking about that anymore. You know, the concern now is more that there is this outside risk that we could be left with with a real inflation problem over the medium term. I I still give the risk of that. uh, I assign the the odds of that as, as being relatively low. But I think it's an important message that there's probably more upside risk rather than downside risk to the inflation outlook at uh, this point. Now, one area, just a couple more uh, items I'd like to talk about. One area where we have seen a lot of inflation, and frankly, it definitely got second billing in the budget yesterday, uh, was uh, is, is in the housing market. You know, I just cannot exaggerate how strong the Canadian housing market is. And this is not just a Canadian story, by the way. We are seeing strong housing markets right around the world. But again, Canada takes a backseat to no one on this front. You know, we've not just seen a V-shaped recovery. We've seen something well beyond that. And in many respects, this is the hottest housing market I have seen nationally. And that's the key here. You know, in, in past housing booms, it's been mostly focused in the large cities, especially Toronto, Vancouver, perhaps Montreal. This time, it's pretty much national. We are seeing strong housing markets almost across the country, especially in smaller cities in in Ontario in particular, and to a lesser extent, Quebec and Atlantic Canada. But this is something that is really sweeping the country. We did see some modest measures in the in the budget, including the uh, the tax on non-residents who have vacant homes in uh, in the country. But that's modest, uh, uh, stacked up against the tidal wave of of demand that uh, that we're seeing. Um, our view is that you know, unless and until policymakers get very serious about trying to dampen the market, it is likely to remain very strong for uh, for a period of time. Now, there is some point at which buyers are just going to express exhaustion. You know, some people talk about the fear of missing out. There's also the fear of overpaying. And I think at some point that will tend to dampen the market a little bit. 
But at this point, we remain very constructive on on the market and believe that it is likely to uh, to strengthen further rather than uh, than go into reverse anytime soon. Uh, the last thing I'll talk about is just uh, the Canadian dollar. You know, much like almost every other financial market out there, it's seen a, a very nice uh, recovery from the depths uh, that it hit just more, a little bit more than a year ago. Our underlying view is that the Canadian dollar is more likely to strengthen rather than weaken over the next year. A powerful global recovery is always good news for the Canadian dollar. We've also been very impressed uh, by the strength in oil prices and the discipline that OPEC is showing at this point. And so those are two very big positive factors for the Canadian dollar. I will say that uh, the dollar barely blinked at the uh, the budget yesterday. There was almost uh, no reaction uh, whatsoever in uh, in currency markets to the budget. And that's largely because uh, the deficit mostly came in and the measures in the the, the, the budget were no big surprise uh, to financial markets. Uh, looking out over the next year, uh, we see the Canadian dollar modestly strengthening. Uh, we think it's more likely to strengthen than weaken. Uh, longer term, when we get out three to five years, I would regard 80 cents as being close to a ceiling over the medium term for the Canadian dollar. I would uh, hazard to guess that a, a fair value for the, the Canadian dollars more in the 75 to 80 cents range when we look out, say, three to five years uh, down, down the road. Um, that's it for the, uh, the formal part of the presentation. I'd now like to invite uh, Nadim back in to, uh, to join me for a, a spell of uh, Q&A. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you very much, Doug. Let me start by reminding our guests they can use the chat feature shown on their screen if they'd like to ask a question this morning. Uh, but I will start with some several questions that we did receive from clients uh, during registration, as I mentioned um, at the beginning. Um, first one, Doug, that came in is, what do you think we should expect for future corporate tax rates based on this budget? Yeah, and it's uh, it's it's interesting because as I mentioned, revenues have actually held up relatively well. They have not been the uh, the, the story in the deterioration in in uh, in the deficit that we've seen in the last couple of years it really was mostly because of all of the specific spending to to deal with the pandemic um i think perhaps the the you know the big wild card here for canadian corporate tax rates is what happens in in the us um with biden's uh, big infrastructure proposal uh, part of that uh, part partly to pay for that was the the proposal to uh, to raise corporate income taxes in the us uh, reversing about half of the uh, the tax cut that we saw under uh, under Mr. Trump, um, there's been some pushback on on that from moderate Democrats, and I suspect that the uh, ultimately we're going to land at a smaller uh, corporate tax increase in uh, in the U.S. Um, if and when that does happen, I think that's when Ottawa might take a longer look at possibly moving on on corporate tax rates. Um, but it's it's no foregone conclusion whatsoever that uh, that Ottawa is going to uh, to follow in in the wake of the U.S. I think that does give Ottawa a little bit of room to maneuver if the U.S. corporate taxes ultimately do uh, edge back up. Um, but it's not uh, you know to me it's not uh, at all obvious that uh, that that Ottawa is going to fall in their wake. It just does give uh, them the option. Um, in terms of you know the the bigger picture in in terms of uh, corp uh, not just corporate tax increases but tax increases more broadly. My my view all along has been the best way to cure the deficit, the best way to you know get uh, finances under repair and back to where they were before the pandemic began, is to ensure that uh, we get a full economic recovery, and you know anything that can possibly frustrate that economic recovery or thwart it is counterproductive. And I I view broad based tax increases as as being a threat uh, to the economic recovery. So. 
if I was finance minister, if I was in uh, charge, I, I would not even be considering broad-based tax increases until you know the pandemic is completely in the rearview mirror, and we know exactly how the dust is settled on uh, on on government finances. Uh, so uh, you know, bottom line is. First, we have to wait to see what happens in the U.S., and then I think we have to wait to see how, you know, exactly how Canadian, the Canadian fiscal landscape uh, sorts itself out after the uh, the pandemic is over. Okay, um, a question actually just came in online, which kind of ties into what you just said, is with the lack of new taxes, or at least lack of increase in taxes, is there a concern that this is an election budget, and that then a new government will come in with massive taxes after the fact? So two, uh, there's two parts to that question. One is, um, you know, is, is this an election budget? I, I, I would certainly assume that there's a very good possibility that it can serve as, uh, as, as a platform, uh, you know, given, given the fact that the, uh, the average minority government uh, historically has lasted about 18 months or so, and we're getting, uh, we're, we're, we're basically at, almost at, at that date. I, I'm almost operating under the assumption that, uh, you know, after the worst of the pandemic is over, we're, we've got a very high probability of, uh, of looking at, 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 a, at an election later this this year, so I, I would regard it as as a pre-election budget. Um, could we be looking at tax increases uh, after after the uh, the election? Well, I guess that really depends on, you know, who wins the election and uh, you know whether we're faced with another minority government again. Um, I, I would just uh, just very briefly uh, repeat what what I just said. You know, I I think first of all we have to see what the the fiscal picture does look like after after the pandemic. Like, do we even need tax increases to to really stabilize uh, government finances and and, um, you know, and, and uh, again, again uh, tax increases, significant tax increases could frustrate the recovery. And I just think that would be completely counterproductive until we've got a, a complete economic recovery at this point. Okay. Thanks, Doug. Another one um, just came in online. Is there any money in the budget for infrastructure spending? Uh, the short answer is well. First of all, I, I would uh, suggest that there was money for almost almost everything in uh, in in this budget, and I'm not I'm not being facetious on that front. But it's it's interesting. Um, you know, typically uh, a normal quote recovery budget or you know post uh, recession budget would be would go very very heavy on on infrastructure. Um, there there were there was some money allocated to uh, to infrastructure, but it wasn't billed as you know uh, you know one. You know, one infrastructure budget uh, uh, bucket, I should say, it was put into a, a variety of areas. There was, for instance, six billion set aside for infrastructure aimed at uh, indigenous communities. There was uh, lots of money aimed at uh, at you know green energy in infrastructure. Um, it wasn't uh, parceled out into uh, you know a single file of infrastructure. It was uh, basically sprinkled throughout the budget. But I will say, you know, to to, to me, the, one of the key messages is it didn't really rely that heavily on on infrastructure, and that. Made May well be appropriate given the situation that we're in. When you think about uh, this this recession and recovery, it's a very very different from every other one we've seen. You know, in in the past, typically what we see is the uh, the interest sensitive, heavy industries, things like manufacturing and construction are the ones that hit are hit hardest. They were not hit hard this time relative to uh, say the service sector. In fact, you know, of course, the residential construction industry is absolutely on wheels. Uh, it just so happens we saw the strongest housing start number for the month of March. This uh, figure just came out yesterday that we've uh, ever seen before. Over 300,000 units uh, were begun in the month of March at, at an annual rate. We've never seen numbers like uh, like that before in a, in, a, in a single month. So the construction sector is actually 
uh, at least on the residential side, is actually quite robust. And so I believe that the uh, the thinking in uh, in Ottawa was that the uh, the construction sector uh, didn't need um, extra support in uh, in in in, the, in these circumstances, and really, what they focus more on is uh, is the sectors that have been directly affected by the pandemic, and do need a lot more help. You know, things like the tourism sector and the uh, the small business sector uh, is is where the real pain has been, and that uh, that ultimately does need the support. And construction wasn't uh, particularly in uh, in need of a lot of support, and that's why um, the spending did not rely particularly heavily on what would traditionally be seen as, uh, you know, as, as a typical area to focus on in, in a recovery, and that would be infrastructure spending. Okay, thanks. We're going to flip to a different industry. Um, what do you see as the outlook for the automotive industry and its supply chain? And of course, the uh, the auto sector has faced all kinds of challenges in uh, in this episode. It's it's interesting on the on the demand side. Uh, this has again not been a typical recession and recovery at at all. Yes, auto sales and production, you know, almost went to zero last uh, last April. But it's it's impressive how uh, quickly uh, sales have almost completely recovered in uh, in both Canada and the U.S. In fact, in the month of March, uh, U.S. auto sales had one of their best months uh, ever in, uh, in in the U.S. And so the demand is uh, is is certainly there. Um, the auto sector is is facing all kinds of different challenges, though. You know, first of all, they're facing the short term challenge of of this chip shortage, uh, which is uh, is is leading to uh, a variety of of uh, you know production cutbacks that we're seeing, uh, especially here in uh, in Canada. And we do think that is going to ding uh, production in a pretty meaningful way in both Canada and the U.S. this this year. Uh, you know, I guess from the automaker standpoint, is the the positive news is there is they're going to have a lot of pricing power uh, th- this year because I think there actually are going to be shortages of uh, in in particular makes uh, th- this year in, uh, in in North America. Longer term, of course, we're we're obviously looking at this uh, this profound transition uh, to much more emphasis on uh, electric vehicles over uh, in in the years ahead. Uh, of course, that carries you know incredible implications for uh, right up and down the. Uh, the uh, the, uh, the the supply chain uh, significant changes. You know, of course, there's uh, the the parts industry is 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 facing a major transformation in uh, in the years ahead. Uh, the you know, for, uh, fortunately enough for for Canada, we do have a lot of mandates now uh, to build electric vehicles in the in the years ahead. But it it is going to be a real challenge for. Uh, uh, for uh, for the, the parts uh, the parts industry in in particular, uh, the of course the other issue we're we're dealing with, and uh, I think the questioner is really hitting on that is, you know, we we do we do face I think a fundamental uh, review of supply chains uh, right across the board. I think, you know, industries uh, manufacturing in particular uh, have uh, come face to face with. Uh, you know, a, a lot of significant challenges with uh, lengthy supply chains uh, through the pandemic, and I think there, there's there's going to be a, a wholesale review uh, and potentially a reordering in many industries of of supply chains. I think ultimately supply chains in uh, in a variety of industries will will be shortened, and uh, and I suspect that does include the auto industry as as well. That doesn't mean that's it's going to be the case uh, for every you know. Uh, for 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 every manufacturer, for every automaker, um, but I do think uh, you know you know whether it's the transition to electric vehicles, electric vehicles I should say, uh, the the short term chip shortage, um, or or this uh, review of uh, of supply chains, the the auto industry faces uh, 
an incredible transformation over the next five and 10 years, I believe. Okay, thank you. I'm gonna ask you to put a bit of a fortune teller hat on here, but um, what is your assumption or forecast regarding timing of the opening of the US-Canada border? That that is a tough one, and of course, that's uh, that's one we've been dealing with, uh, you know, really, really since the pandemic began. Um, I, I, you know, obviously, there's pressure on on both sides to uh, to open the border as uh, as soon as safely possible. I, I suspect that will be the day when uh, when governments on on both sides have determined that we have reached something akin uh, to herd immunity. My my best guess is that uh, you know that's that's when uh, both economies can. Uh, pretty much fully or close to fully safely reopen. Uh, my best guess would be something like September or October that uh, that we'd be looking at. So it's it's likely after uh, the summer tourism season. Um, again, I have no particular inside information on that or uh, you know special insight. That that would be our best assumption though at this at this point. Okay. Thank you, Doug. Um, you know we all saw after this was tabled, the reaction to the budget from the other political parties, you know, the NDP, the Conservative, um, interesting words um, that they both chose to speak of. When you think of their reaction, do you think there's a serious possibility that the budget will fail to pass? I don't. Um, I, th I actually, you know, of course, the, uh, the the government really only needs one uh, one party to support it. And I I thought Mr. Singh was incredibly clear. Um, he effectively said he, you know, he thought it would be irresponsible to have an election in the in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, so, and and you know, frankly, I thought the uh, the, the budget probably ticked a lot of boxes uh, for uh, for the NDP. Uh, so I would I would be surprised if the NDP would uh, you know would not support the uh, uh, the uh, the budget. Um, you know, I think the, the the question is whether the the sitting government, you know, ultimately wants to wants to call an election. I, I, I suspect they will not be forced into calling an election. I think it will be the government's choice. Ultimately, uh, I'm under the assumption that the budget will pass. Okay, thank you. Um, question that just came in online: What concerns do you have with bankruptcies, both personal and corporate, once the government program programs end? Um, I know some of them were extended in the budget to the fall of this year. But I think the concern is around, it's not a never, never plan, we all get that. So what are the concerns, you know, once, once the merry-go-round stops, so to speak? So, and first of all, just taking a step back, you know, th this has been an extraordinary recession and recovery historically. And I think one of the most extraordinary features of it was the fact that we saw a collapse in uh, in personal bankruptcies in in the last year and it's it's you know there's no mystery what's going on here it was due to the incredible level of of government support it was also you know the fact that uh, people were able to defer their mortgages if uh, if if need be and it was because of the the steep drop in in interest rates too that uh, that made debts uh, more affordable um I, I, I believe that uh, we are not going to see a significant run-up in uh, in personal bankruptcies over over the next year, even even when uh, supports do uh, do fade away. Uh, you know, frankly, if if uh, the government's going to err on on this front, it's that they'll they'll, you know, if they need to keep these support programs running longer, they will. You know, if they're going to make a mistake, it's that they err on the side of being too generous. So I think that uh, we are not going to see, you know, a significant run-up in in personal bankruptcies. Business bankruptcies are a different story. Uh, they too collapsed over the last year, um, but I don't think there's a guarantee that they're going to stay low when uh, we're on the other side of this. I think a lot of businesses are just hanging on. 
um, you know, especially in, in sectors that are directly affected. Uh, some have just shut their doors, uh, haven't necessarily declared bankruptcy. Um, I, I do believe that uh, that that does not give us the full story. Uh, the you know the, the drop in business bankruptcies over the last year. I, I am concerned that when we're on the other side of this, uh, that when the economy is reopened and businesses can you know completely reassess where they they stand, I I I think we could get an echo of uh, business bankruptcies on on the other side of this. Okay. In the budget, was there anything more for the heavy, heavily hit industries, travel, tourism, hospitality? There, there was a, a little bit. Uh, there was, uh, you know, in, in this day and age, a billion dollars sounds sounds like a little. Uh, there was a billion dollars aimed at rejuvenating the uh, the travel and tourism tourism industry. There was a there was a fair bit of money spent into. Uh, I th essentially, I would say making people more comfortable uh, traveling by by airplanes. As you know, as more of us get uh, uh, vaccinated, um, you know, there there was all kinds of money set aside on uh, on that front. Um, but most of it was just the extension of programs that are already in place. And 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 I, I, there there was an attempt to target it a little bit better at at sectors that uh, that have been more directly affected. But there was not, uh, say, an overwhelming large package aimed at supporting the uh, the, the travel and tourism industry. It was more, uh, you know, I, I would say more of, of the same of general levels of, of business support and, and support to, you know, help uh, firms reemploy people as as they're able to uh, to reopen again. It was almost a, a cues on steroid. I'm, I'm sorry, I actually do not remember the name of that uh, that program off the, the the top of my head. But basically, it uh, was almost uh, subsidizing half of uh, of the pay of of workers as uh, as they reopened in the the initial months uh, over the summer and, and into the early fall. Uh, but industry specific stuff, there there was not a huge new program. No. Okay. Doug, is there anything in this budget that you 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 expected to see or hope to have seen that's not in there? Um, you know, the the one thing we were angling for, at least in the economics department, is we we were hoping for you know something along along the lines to, to try to cool demand a bit in the in the housing sector. It uh, it 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 wasn't there, uh, not not in a significant way. I'm I'm really not surprised though. Uh, you know, frankly, the housing story has really dominated the airways for for weeks, and I, I believe the government didn't want the housing industry to so soak up all the oxygen when there were so many other uh, different important announcements at at this point. Um, you know, frankly, I was I was relieved not to see any uh, significant tax increases. I was somewhat uh, comforted uh, by the, uh, the, the you know the expectation that uh, the budget deficit would come down back to around the thirty billion. Uh, limit in in the years ahead, um, but you know, frankly, as as I said at the outset, you know, there were there were more than over a hundred measures here. Um, I you know, I I I almost would have hoped for less rather than than more. Uh, you know, my my view is that uh, you know the government's role really is is to get the economy through. As I said, hopefully this last stage of the pandemic to get us through to the other side. I really think that should be the job number one is really supporting you know accelerating and supporting the vaccination program as much as possible because really that does hold the key uh, to getting the uh, the economy on on the other side of this uh, so short answer is no there was there was nothing uh, significant that I was uh, really uh, looking for and that wasn't wasn't there in this budget okay thanks and just on that note you mentioned um, getting to the other side a question came in saying is the budget built to withstand another wave of covid 
It is, I would say it is built to withstand the wave that we're going through now. I would say the assumption is that uh, a lot of the special programs like uh, the Qs and, uh, and you know, the, the, the CERB Lite or CRB that's now in place, are the expectation is that uh, they, they will be able to be wound down uh, by the fall. Uh, this, this budget is not prepared for, you know, yet another if if it comes to that, and yet another big wave, say later this year, and uh, and and another round of restrictions uh, that might be needed later later than that. Um, I, I guess the you know the 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 good news is while that would dent uh, finances certainly, I think it's uh, fairly clear that the economy has largely learned to uh, to deal with uh, with restrictions. It's uh, certainly not an ideal world by any means, but uh, but it does seem like you know much of the economy has been able to uh, to at least uh, grind through uh, the restrictions at least temporarily and I don't think the fiscal cost would be uh, particularly huge if there was if there was a fourth wave so it would it would deteriorate government finances further but I don't think it would uh, completely alter the, uh, the the picture and by the way just just as a quick reminder you know if you go back to November really the budget wasn't assuming a, a, a huge significant second wave at that point and uh, you know the ultimate uh, the the end uh, deficit figures really weren't that different. Uh, from uh, from late, late last year, or even even with the second and and the third wave restrictions that we've seen. Okay, thanks, Doug. Um, we talked a little bit a couple times about the housing market, the strength of it, it being across Canada, um, and that not much was in the budget that's going to really cool it down. Uh, you mentioned that something that perhaps is is one thing that you thought would have been in there, but is not. The question is. What do you think is an appropriate and efficient measure that could have been in there to cool down the real estate market? And just to to reiterate, I, I really wasn't expecting them to uh, to to really do anything in the in the budget. And and it it does you know measures that could cool the housing market do not necessarily have to be in uh, in a budget. They can uh, they can come at any time. And I don't you know just because they didn't do anything yesterday doesn't mean uh, Ottawa's uh, is going to completely stand aside over over the next year, especially if the market remains anything close to as hot as what we saw in uh, in in the month of uh, in, well really through the first three months of of the year. Um, we actually put out a piece in the economics department a few weeks ago uh, that listed 10 potential measures. Um, I wouldn't say we ranked them in order of, uh, of feasibility and, uh, and, and worthiness, but it was pretty close. Uh, frankly, right at the top of the list is, uh, you know, ultimately is, uh, it lies at the, the feet of the Bank of Canada. Uh, I think one thing the Bank of Canada could do without raising interest rates is just, you know, stop talking about interest rates remaining low forever. You know, maybe just the opposite. Uh, start reminding people that interest rates uh, can move up at 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 some point. Um, in terms of what the uh, the federal or even the provincial governments can do, we we had a whole list, a uh, variety of of topics. Uh, the the reality is, though, almost anything they do. Uh, will have side effects and will are, are not going to please everybody by by any means. One one thing provincial governments could do, though, you know, we we've seen a, a non-resident tax uh, in uh, the Golden Horseshoe in uh, in Ontario, but it, it doesn't apply to a lot of smaller centers in in Ontario, and that's that's where the real heat is these days. You know, places like uh, you know Sarnia, Windsor, London, Ontario, uh, which don't have a non-residence tax. Uh, it, it may not be that effective, but it really doesn't have that many negative uh, side effects either. And even if it just acts as a signal, you know, that the, uh, the provincial government is, uh, is, is uncomfortable with the, the pace of, uh, of price gains, that, that can have an important effect on the market just by signaling 
that the uh, you know it can break the psychology that we're seeing right now. This uh, fear of missing out, which we think is fanning the flames. The other the other thing we talked about was doing away with blind bidding, uh, which we think is really ballooning housing markets. And it uh, doing away with that would have uh, would have few side effects on on the rest of the economy. Uh, so we we would actually rank that that as one of the uh, the top things that can be done to at least throw a little bit of a wet blanket on on the, the market. Okay, thank you, Doug. I could probably keep you here all day. Uh, we've received a lot of great questions, but we are unfortunately out of time now this morning. So thank you, Doug, for sharing your insights with us this morning. As always, they were very informative and extremely insightful. And thank you to everyone who joined us today. We will have a replay and a recap on our website soon at bmo.com slash commercial. We thank you for your time, your partnerships, and your business, and hope that we've been able to provide some added value here for you today. And if you have any questions that we weren't able to address today, please don't hesitate to reach out to your BMO representative, and we will, of course, get you an answer. Thank you again for joining us today. Please stay safe and, of course, stay healthy, and have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more insights, visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure slash.